I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. G'day, I'm Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute, and of course you're listening to Democracy Sausage, a joint production of the ANU and Policy Forum. Last Friday, the government revealed that what was to cost $130 billion, its much-discussed JobKeeper program, would actually cost $60 billion less, or to put it more essentially, it would keep 3.5 million surplus employees linked to their employer during the COVID recession, not the 6 million-plus workers we'd been repeatedly told right up to Thursday of last week when the Treasury Secretary and the Tax Commissioner both confirmed that number. The opposition, bludgeoned for years over its successful GFC spending, has called the JobKeeper underspend the biggest budgeting error in the nation's history. Red-faced, the government has cycled through a series of, I guess, fairly lame-sounding excuses, including the claim that employers filled out the form wrongly and that Australia had experienced a much lower level of infection than predicted, constituting a health miracle. That word again. The government likes talking about miracles, yet some voters might think that a miracle would be when those in charge finally take responsibility for things that have gone sideways or been managed incompetently. Think the Angus Taylor forged document affair in which nobody is held to account? The doctored $100 million sports grants program? Again, nobody to blame. And now a massive modelling, accounting and program error in which no one erred. Meanwhile, a debate continues over the cathartic potential of the COVID crisis for economic and social renewal, and that will be a key theme this week. I think it's fair to say that there are many worthy reform ideas swirling around at present, but will any of them actually land, or will we simply return to the same stalemate as we had before this crisis? Joining me as always is political scientist, lecturer and director of the Centre for the Study of Australian Politics, Dr Maria Teflaga. Turbulent times, Maria. Has the coalition just learnt the meaning of the saying, live by the sword, die by the sword? Oh, I think they, they may have, yes, yes. I think that's the uh, the joy of being in opposition, perhaps, is that it's all it's all care and, and no responsibility. And when one is in government, ultimately, one is responsible for what happens, whether they like it or not, whether it's fair or not. That is simply the reality. Yeah, I guess what goes around comes around. Also with us today is the Chief Political Correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, and indeed the author of Venom, the compelling account of the end of Malcolm Turnbull's benighted Prime Ministership, David Crowe. Welcome, Crowe. Hi, Mark. 
Good to have you along. And finally, Dr Peter Byrne is Head of Influence and Policy at the Australian Industry Group, a major employer body representing thousands of companies with a particular emphasis, I guess, on manufacturing. Peter, thanks for joining us on The Sausage. Thank you very much. Now, David Crowe, before we get into the sort of policy weeds, let's look at this JobKeeper stuff up. How did it occur and how bad is it, do you think? It's a, it's a, a monumental error on a scale that we haven't seen uh, in the press gallery. Uh, well, I don't think it's ever been seen in the press gallery, uh, a stuff up of this size. And originally, really, it gets back to the fact that Treasury had a much gloomier outlook for the recession. Um, they thought that there would be more than 6 million or around 6 million people who would need JobKeeper and they budgeted accordingly and that was their forecast. I think that there are reasonable reasons for that for that error in the first place because nobody could really see where things were going to go when you're talking about the outlook in March. There are a lot of really grave fears for the scale of infections, um, the hit to the health sector and what that would do to the economy. The real mystery is why the forecasts weren't adjusted earlier when employers started applying for the scheme and when money started being paid because what's happened is that the ATO has been managing the payroll side of this JobKeeper scheme and has not actually picked up the fact that fewer people um, were applying for it uh, through the payroll system or getting it through the payroll system. So that should have been picked up much, much earlier. Um, Why it wasn't um, indicates a problem with I guess, the supervision of the program once it had been put in place. I think a key point is they picked up this problem before anybody, any, any money had been paid to anybody who didn't deserve it and so forth. So we've got to remember that it's a good thing that they're saving money and it's not, you know, the, 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 the full $130 billion has not been applied for. That's actually a positive sign. But there are questions about the way that wasn't picked up and I think it highlights the uncertainty now um, about the economic outlook, what's actually been happening with the programs that are put in place. Um, We need more questions answered about what was happening with JobKeeper and what was happening with the real economy because it's only with those answers that we'll know whether we need to spend some of that $60 billion elsewhere in some other scheme or through an expanded JobKeeper scheme. So can I ask either you, David, or or Peter, I mean, um, I think, you know, it's always sort of funny when we – talk about um, waste in programs that are clearly designed for quick um, execution, right? Because, uh, you know, you sort of give up uh, some error for um, for efficiency. But do we actually know what has happened to the 2.5 million workers that aren't, uh, that haven't claimed this scheme? Are they simply just fine in the economy or are they now on the job seeker payment or are they actually sort of existing unaccounted for in the parts of the economy that we are not supporting through a wage subsidy? I don't think we do know what's happening with those workers and I think we need to find out more about what's happening in the real economy before any decisions can be made about what to do with with any further financial assistance. I think one explanation is that companies are under huge financial stress but they may not have seen revenue falls of the 30% required uh, to qualify for JobKeeper. Or they may be making workers redundant rather than applying for JobKeeper to keep those workers on. 
In fact, or may have already made job may may have already made job seekers redundant before yes. it flowed. I mean, there was some sort of lag before it one before it was announced, and two before it actually flowed. So, there must be some employees in the um in in the in the job market uh, who were simply unable to hang around for that long. Yes. I mean, because JobKeeper, the whole purpose of JobKeeper was to keep that link between employer and employee, and uh, we now find that the, it's not helping as many of them. I mean, it's an interesting point you make, uh, David, about the, um, you know, the, the, I guess what some people would call the saving. We're not spending $60 billion that we thought we were spending on this program, but it may hide some of the damage as you're just saying that's that's been done in the economy and it and it does mean that there's significantly less sort of stimulus being put into the economy as well uh, i mean i think you made the point in a piece you wrote today that uh, the, the stimulus was was said to be worth 16.4 percent of economic output and now because of this shortfall it is down more like at thirteen point four percent now. Whether that's significant or not, I guess remains to be seen. But there are one point six million or so people on Job Seeker. That's the old uh, unemployment benefit, happily doubled for the for the short term. But um, how many of those people are, are basically now jobless for a significant period of time? Uh, in some cases, indefinitely, by virtue of uh, not being able to uh, access Job Keeper. Yes, I was going to say that um, just just to clarify that it's not the employees who apply for um, JobKeeper, but the employers. That's one thing, and I think that um, the point I think that David made about businesses experiencing quite a lot of stress, but not satisfying the threshold reduction in turnover, is probably a key point. So. Um, 30% reduction in sales over a comparable period is, of course, a very big one, big uh, hit to to any business. But many businesses are suffering less of a reduction in turnover than the threshold amount, but still are under considerable stress, but they are not eligible. So a business with a low margin or a lower than average margin, suffering a, for example, a 20% reduction in turnover, may well be um, under cons- much more stress than a business that is eligible. So I think that in the design of JobKeeper, they may well have um, misread the relationship between stress and turnover and set that threshold higher than uh than, than the level that of stress relief that they needed to get. So there are many stressed businesses that just do not qualify. And they, they had a rough and ready um, tool, the turnover reduction. But that's a pretty poor, pretty blunt indicator of the stress that businesses are under. So many businesses who um, might have otherwise have been eligible and claiming on behalf of their employees are simply excluded by an insufficient drop in turnover. Given what Peter just said, the the real challenge for the government is to figure out whether it needs to change those JobKeeper settings. And at the moment, we've got responses from both Josh Frydenberg as Treasurer and Scott Morrison as Prime Minister resisting any idea of adjusting JobKeeper. And it sounds at the moment from their language that the most they might consider is possibly extending JobKeeper under the current rules um, beyond that September finish date. 
and maybe they won't even do that. But, you know, I, I think they're going to have to be uh, dragged slowly at this rate to actually um, acknowledge that they need to, to make some changes to their, to their overall stimulus. Maria, can I ask you this? Referring to what David's just said there, the, the sort of what appears to be the stubbornness of the government in, in relation to this point. Now, when I say stubbornness, I mean maybe maybe uh, some people will take the view that uh, that it's correct stubbornness as well, that they should hold the line. But I wonder to what extent it's a merely a continuation or a function of the debate that was already raging before this revelation emerged uh, on Friday, which is to say there was already quite a lot of criticism of the JobKeeper program for the sectors that were not helped, uh, for the you know the, the short-term casuals, people in the arts and entertainment industry in particular, but also a number of other areas that were cutouts from the JobKeeper program. And the government had steadfastly uh, refused to expand the program. The circumstances have now changed on it significantly. One of its main defences for not expanding the program, for not including these various groups that were left out, was that you have to draw the line somewhere, that it was a $130 billion funding envelope and no more could be afforded. Um, of course, that rationale has evaporated on it uh, because you could include all of those groups now within uh, one imagines the uh, the funding envelope that they had already allocated for this. So thinking about it politically, is the, is the government in danger of turning what was a positive for it into a negative if, in fact, it becomes associated with a, a program that excludes a lot of people, that sees a lot of people being unemployed and which is seen gradually more and more to have not been adequate. So I think a lot of this really depends on what happens with tomorrow's economic statement where we're supposed to get the first really clear indications of what this government intends to do in terms of rebuilding the economy going, you know, going forward. Um, however, like so far, most of the signs we've gotten from the government are quite ambiguous or, or vague and seem to sort of suggest a kind of throwback to the past with some sort of nice noises here and there around cooperation. Um, but, you know, cooperation is only meaningful if it can really deliver results. Um, and so to sort of answer your, your question, this a uh, mistake definitely increases the pressure on the government to extend the wage subsidy to groups that have missed out, particularly given they are associated with sectors that the government doesn't necessarily have a long and happy relationship with over uh, many uh, years. Um, and so it will be interesting to sort of see what they offer Australians and whether or not they are able to get the economy moving fast enough that this problem of uh, perhaps not supporting enough workers and driving up unemployment amongst young people, in particular women as well, who are disproportionately affected, may become a problem for them politically down the line. David, what's your view about that? And Michael Suker, the Assistant Treasurer, had actually said at one stage in a recent uh, interview that um, the the JobKeeper scheme was hitting all its marks and he was working on the understanding that it was providing assistance or keeping that link between employer and employee for more than 6 million workers. He even volunteered that, you know, if it was only helping half that number, then perhaps it would be open to much more criticism. Well, it is only helping half that number, it seems now. Uh, is the is the government guilty of sort of, you know, that old saying, when the facts change, I change my opinion? Mm. The facts have changed on it, but it isn't changing its opinion. No, it's not. Uh, not 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 quickly, anyway. 
Um, and Michael Sukar is not the one who makes any decision on this front because he's the assistant treasurer. And it's it's a, it's so funny that he made that remark, but it doesn't actually represent any any uh, anything of significance in in shaping government policy because that's up to Morrison and Frydenberg. And I think we know that there are casual workers who are shut out of JobKeeper. We know that there are workers at state-owned enterprises who are shut out and labour is pressing for one of those companies, Donata, which is airport services and catering for flights, for them to be included in the scheme. Government's pushing back against that and it's also pushing back against including universities. And the politics of that are quite brutal. Um, I think for a lot of ordinary workers and ordinary families, everybody knows somebody who's on JobKeeper and for most of those people, it seems to be okay. So I think there's a comfort there and a reassurance about it and people are happy with that. So it's a plus for the government. They are alienating the entire university sector by refusing to include universities in the scheme. They've made why are they refusing? That. We know that some of the people in the Liberal Party room don't really <laughs> like the university sector very much by the sound of their rhetoric. And that's, well, that's a pretty hard decision that years. the government's making. But it is actually what it's doing. I mean, it's giving money through JobKeeper to private sector universities like Bond Uni, but not to the not to the um, the long-standing institutions. And I don't actually see a change in that from the government, even though um, it's causing so much grief. Why is it that that's the case? I mean, uh, is it is it? I mean, you say that uh, the, you know there is a, there's a, an antipathy in the party room to universities, seen as part of you know the overall sort of left or something, but. This is a sector that uh, represents the fourth largest export uh, earnings for the nation. Uh, it's it's a large employer in its own right domestically as well, of course. Um, therefore, the health of the university sector is crucial to, and 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 the export export earnings of that sector is crucial to the overall economy. Surely, that's the mindset that the government ought to have in looking at this, not whether it you know, has been prosecuting a culture war against the, the academy for a long period of time. Could I just um, quote one Liberal backbencher, James Patterson, uh, from Victoria, a senator in the Liberal Party from Victoria, and he made the remark about how universities could ride the boom on the way up and they would have to, they would have to hmm. accept the consequences on the way down. And so there was that view that he was putting, that the university sectors had done very well with overseas students during the boom time and now they had to recalibrate. It was quite um, – there wasn't a lot of understanding or, or um, uh, feeling of uh, assistance there for the university sector. And that wasn't called out by uh, people in the government as being too hard-hearted and, and against a key part of the economy. So I think there is that ingrained attitude towards the universities within the Liberal Party, and it's being reflected now in that policy. Which is disingenuous because the university sector is effectively responding to the policy framework that it has been forced to adopt over the last 20 years. I think the Australian university sector is one of the publicly lowest funded in the OECD, and that's a, that's a decision governments are right to make, but it's sort of disingenuous to say that universities have to ride have ridden a boom when really this is the only way they've been able to fund their core activities to offer excellent world-class education and uh, research. And further to that, I mean, where do they think the jobs of the future and the skills of the future and 
our wages and our high living standards are going to come from in the future as the world is increasingly more competitive and better educated. Yes, and added to that, I think you'd say also that um, you know a, a vast number of university employees, or at least uh, you know people doing uh, vital work in universities, are uh, research assistants. Um, uh, you know, people who are on casual contracts and in some cases uh, relatively short-term casual contracts. So, you know, it's just another example of uh, not really having the policy settings uh, uh, right for for that sector. Peter, before we um, get back to sort of talking about, you know, the, the sort of economic stuff, just staying with uh, this um, uh, JobKeeper program for, for, for a minute longer um, – you, your AI group represents all of all of these employers, companies, big and small. Uh, the the requirements, uh, the eligibility requirements for employers, where they had to show a thirty percent downturn in a month, or if they had a turnover greater than a billion dollars, it had to be a whopping fifty percent downturn in a month. Has that proved? too difficult and and I guess this goes right back to our earlier you know the first question when we were discussing this which is you know there may be a lot of uh, stress out there of um, uh, employees that have not been given assistance just because their companies weren't eligible for it Uh, what what are you hearing from your members on that there are a lot of members there are a lot of businesses who um, are under considerable stress are putting employees off or um, standing them down you know on to part-time work that are not eligible for JobKeeper. Um, so, yes, I think that um, there are two things about why JobKeeper might not be costing as much as was anticipated. One is that the eligibility rules are excluding more businesses than was thought to be the case because they may well be assuming that a reduction in turnover of the 30% level uh, would capture more businesses. Um, But the other one is that maybe the downturn isn't as big as they were anticipating when the program was announced at the end of March. And that's quite possible. Uh, So we don't really know that, and I don't know when we will know that. But um, you could imagine that with the growth of infections that occurred during March, uh, that they were looking at a much more uh, devastating impact on the economy, much deeper reduction uh, restrictions, um, and so on, than actually has occurred. We won't know that, though. Interestingly, in the announcement that it made on Friday, Treasury did not back away from its 10% unemployment forecast. So that's got to be a key indicator. And if it's holding on to that forecast, then that would suggest that rather than underestimating the severity uh, overestimating the severity of the crisis they would they rather have underestimated the degree to which turnover the decline in turnover is um, an indicator of stress so they're excluding businesses on that basis they'd be excluding businesses that are under considerable stress or organizations I should say under considerable stress but not um, not not um, meeting the turnover thresholds. 
The government's done a pretty good job, though, of keeping confidence um, going in the sense of uh, um, there being a, a the other side to this that's changed a bit. You know, the, the, the language of snapback is uh, largely gone, but uh, because the circumstances have changed on it. But uh, through the GFC, of course, that was the key policy focus to keep enough confidence and demand in the economy. Employers at that stage were on the back of a a uh, long-term skills shortage and companies, employers were encouraged to hang on to their skilled staff rather than letting them go and go through all that business of rehiring because there was said said to be another side. This government's done, I think, a, a pretty good job as the circumstances have changed of, of, of talking up the prospects of the economy coming back. Um, and encouraging the idea of the you know the states letting go of their restrictions and so forth. How how one do you agree with that? And and two, how worried uh, are you from a um, from an employer perspective about the states hanging on to these restrictions, particularly keeping their borders closed for um, a long period? Uh, yeah, I think that I think that the um, programs and the language has been conducive to improving confidence and to uh, preventing a, a bigger downturn than might otherwise have occurred. So I agree totally that with that, and um, it may well be that the announcement effect of um, JobKeeper um, and then it's the cash that began to flow from the beginning of this month has had had a sufficient impact to to um, ward off the worst of that that downturn. That would be great if it has occurred, but we won't really know for a little while. The retail figures that came out last week were pretty poor. Um, the the unemployment data that came out the week before, um, were, when, you, when you dug behind the, the headline numbers, were also pretty poor. Um, 20% of the workforce has either lost a job or had reduced hours in April. So that's that's nothing to, nothing to cheer about. Um, but that said, confidence did rise in in um, after the announcement. Uh, there was a measurable the NAB confidence measure rose after that announcement. So that's got to be that's that you know having a bit both ways there. And then the, I don't think the state borders are doing anything, or the internal borders are doing anything anymore. Uh, once we introduced uh, the closing the international borders, that that did most of the work because that's the major, that was been the major source of um, infections and uh, the, the ability to constrain that and the increased testing regimes and um, have, have really been doing that work. And so the, the internet, the state borders aren't really helping. Uh, they help, um, they have, may well help the governments in the different states, the smaller states, which tend to be more parochial. Uh, so they might be um, they might be providing a bit of a political boost and a morale boost in in those states, but as for uh, containing the health implications, I'd be very surprised if um, there was a residual benefit that they were generating, given the extent of the decline in the growth of infections. It's hard to see that state borders. Uh, Keeping, you know, are doing very much. There's not much more to do on the spread of infections, is there? So mm. they can't be. They can't be. They can't be much. Can't be that effective. Um, I do think, though, the uh, the other restrictions relating to um, social distancing and um, or, or just distancing, really, 
are very important. And and I think that you know the gradual and tentative easing that's going on is probably the right way to go. And no, no doubt we will see an increase in infections here and there, uh, increased growth of infections here and there. But um, uh, with with Australia having you know whatever it is seven thousand ish uh, total infections, um, and having avoided the health system impacts with a very low mortality rate, you'd think that the easing, gradual easing, and and closely monitored easing of those physical restrictions makes a lot of sense. The state borders don't really make much sense anymore. Yeah, it strikes me that they were originally quite logical from the state's point of view because they were running their state health systems. Their objective was to make sure they didn't have their hospitals overloaded uh, with cases. Uh, that's been obviously a preoccupation of all governments uh, that to not become overwhelmed. And so you could understand them wanting to control the rate at which infections presented to their health system. But that argument has gone. Uh, we're dealing with a manageable caseload, uh, no matter how you look at it, uh, right across the nation. And you wouldn't imagine uh, that that situation would change as a result of removing those state borders. Yet uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland in particular is particularly sort of bolshy on this question, uh, talking about not really, you know, not opening up Queensland borders until September, which I still find very hard to believe in the lead up to an election in a state that derives so much income from tourism and which is so decentralised and, you know, has, you know, as I say, gets so much economic benefit from people coming up from the south during the winter for tourism and so, so many people are employed in those industries. Uh, it seems pretty bizarre to me. I think it's pretty hard to see Queensland staying closed as late as September because, um, there's so much pressure around the country to open up the economy, but also the numbers are so far down in Queensland. They've got things under control so well. And uh, it's almost to the point where you're getting a contrast between states that want to eradicate and states that want to suppress because I don't see a scenario where New South Wales will fall to zero active cases. Across the country as of Sunday afternoon, there were 501 active cases when you, when you look at the total COVID cases over time and take out those that have recovered and, of course, those who've died. And so 501 active cases across the country, but still obviously hundreds in Victoria and New South Wales, none in WA, um, I think a dozen in Queensland. It's incredibly low. Um, and so you can see why they're worried about New South Wales. But can they really keep that border closed um, for months and months and months because there's, there are always going to be some cases in New South Wales, I think, and so you can never get a scenario where, New South, where Queensland has got none and can never afford to open the border again. Um, and I have talked to business groups who, who do worry about this, um, this impact on the economy and the sheer paperwork that they've got to go through to get the permit to cross from New South Wales for business purposes into Queensland. Makes you wonder who's running the country as well. I mean, it, it, does the national government determine what's good for the national economy or, or, or are states determining well, these things? Well, it's a really interesting question because um, I've actually tried to get the federal government to bite on this question. Do we run a national economy or not? And they're very reluctant to go really hard against Anastasia Palaszczuk on this question. And I think it represents a bit of a shift in the dynamic of the national cabinet. Because 
at a point about a month ago, maybe three weeks ago, Scott Morrison tried to make a virtue of the fact that National Cabinet wasn't deciding all these things and the states were sovereign on some of these questions. So he's actually stepped back. I don't think that there's been an incredibly pointed personal remark that he has made against Anastasia Palaszczuk. I mean, his position's clear. He wants state border controls removed. But I think the feds have accepted that they can't dictate that to the states. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, let's talk about a number of the reform possibilities that are presented by this COVID crisis and everything from the way we work to uh, the way we fund our services and uh, the way uh, businesses uh, operate. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Peter Byrne, there's a bit around at the moment, as David Crowe has pointed out, in terms of the reform space. But in his recent Friday column, he's he's noted that uh, uh, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is not being very specific about the reform agenda. Uh, You, on the other hand, have talked about uh, it being this moment when, um, you know, it's almost like a cathartic moment when we can get things done. Uh, Are you genuinely hopeful that uh, there is a new atmosphere in favour of reform in areas like industrial relations, taxation, education and training, these sorts of things? Well, I'm I'm hopeful that there is an atmosphere. Whether the government's part of it, I'm not sure. Um, But there's a lot of people talking about... Um, the, the, the opportunity that we, we face, having sort of paused for a, a little while, to address um, a few things. One is we've, someone's got to engineer a recovery. Um, now, that's, that's far from certain and far from easy. This is a big downturn. It'll take some doing. And there are some areas around that recovery which um, we haven't managed very well in the past, um, particularly youth unemployment. Um, so there's something to be managed there. Um, there's a few things that are very, will be different in the in the world as we know it, as we come to know it. Um, so uh, transport may be different. Work could well be different. Um, uh, and um, just how how we how we uh, group together socially that could be different. Migration might be different in Australia. And all of those things need to be thought through. And what do we do um, to make up for, for that, make up for perhaps a loss of productivity through more distance at workplaces, um, a lack of ability to get to work in crowded public transport, 
without the stimulus of migration, um, temporary or permanent, uh, or perhaps a better, better, more likely a lower pace of migration. And then the other important thing to note is that there were pre-COVID, as we as we entered ended two thousand and nineteen, there were a lot of underlying shortcomings in the Australian economy. We we don't want to return to as things were at the end of two thousand and nineteen. Productivity had been low for a long time. Um, we. We um, and, and all the ingredients of that. Our education system had not been delivering, and in relative terms, and in some cases in absolute terms, would, would, was producing poorer results um, than uh, previously. Our tax system um, has, for a long time, been in need of an overhaul, and now even more so because. We've got um, a large amount of spending, give or take 60, million, 60 billion, but a large amount of spending that somehow has got to be repaid. Um, we, we want the economy to grow quick, quickly and we've got to generate um, new avenues of productivity growth and indeed new avenues of activity. And we can't really think that our current tax system is going to help that because you know, we have we still have this very high reliance on the taxation of personal income and of normal profits that mean that we're we're behind the eight ball if we want to do two things be pro growth and pro revenue. So I think there's a fair bit that needs to be done. Public finances and productivity both have an underlying um problems that were inherent before uh, the COVID crisis, but are both exacerbated by the, um, the COVID crisis. And there's a lot of people who are thinking that, yes, we do need to address these issues, but uh, as you intimated, the government might not be um, totally on board, uh, and um, there's a reform weariness and, and historically they came to government almost by surprise, I think, and didn't really have a, a long-term agenda. But from what we're hearing, they are um, sounding out that, and they they also have been um, thinking about the importance of these um, of a of a reform agenda as much as that um, that phrase is distasteful. And and one of the things here is that I think there's a recognition. I don't know whether the government's in this camp or not, but a recognition that we can't just pursue reform for the sake of business sector or productivity growth. It's got to be about improving social outcomes, social inclusion, expanding opportunities, and linking those with the economic growth and economic dynamism that will help support and reinforce those directions rather than say, oh, we've got to concentrate on the economy versus the society. So I think there's a big agenda there. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think some of the the noises coming out of the government are are a bit sort of uh, worrying at times. Uh, we sort of seem to hear increasing calls to sort of pit the environment against the economy, for example. So, you know, economic, uh, we should be cutting green tape or, you know, this sort of, but without potentially actually sort of thinking about why we have this green tape in the first place, so-called green tape. I guess what actually really concerns me is, um, you know, the position of women is already under a lot of pressure uh, at a time like this. We already know that women are doing two-thirds of the additional housework and childcare that is going on at the moment. And if we're all to be working or more of us to be working at home, uh, we know that women are more affected by industries that were shut down. We know that they're more likely to be casually employed and we know that they dominate underpaid work sectors. And so I think this is one of the things I've sort of found a bit alarming is that the government isn't actually speaking directly to this issue of uh, how is this recovery going to um, help the condition of women, given that um, we already have like fairly low female participation uh, comparatively and um, that they're sort of dominated in, you know, either casual or part-time employment. And as you sort of say, we don't necessarily want to go back to the economy of um, 2019. Um, And I just sort of wonder whether or not this is even on the government's radar. It's very hard to tell what's on the radar, isn't it? It it is hard to say say what's on the radar, David. David, I was just going to ask you, um, going back to Peter's com- a couple of terms Peter used then, he talked about productivity growth, which uh, to a lot of unions, a lot of people on the labour side is often um, seen as as sort of code for more work for the same or less pay. Um, and, and he also used the term social inclusion, which is seen on the conservative side as as being sort of you know, soft, touchy, feely type stuff that's going to uh, cost uh, cost the business community some sort of money or, or, you know, result in higher taxation and higher spending, uh, for things that, uh, you know, can't necessarily show a, a benefit on the, on the balance sheet. So I guess given, uh, the, the points you've made in your column about wondering about where this, whether this reform agenda is real or rhetorical, uh, you know, what's, what, what's the likelihood that we're just going to drop back into the old divisive tropes, uh, that each side sees of the other? I think, um, when we're seeing a debate about what the reform agenda should be rather than a specific debate about uh, about proposals the government wants to happen. And I think that there is a there is a higher likelihood that it will then revert to a bit of an impasse over, over what to do. On tax reform, for instance, the government says it's in favour of lower taxes, uh, but it's not clear which direction it wants to head in, whether that means lower personal tax cuts uh, again which it's done before, or whether it will attempt uh, wider company tax cuts because, of course, it put some of those to the last parliament and only got half of them done. So it's got some unfinished business on that front. But its language is not particularly strong about any hunger to achieve change. And it's the same on industrial relations. Um, The Prime Minister talks about rigidities in the system, and that could mean um, that he's willing to uh, make some changes to the enterprise bargaining system. Uh, but that's not clear at all. And again, he doesn't express it in a way that indicates any hunger for the change. Um, and it's not an area where he has a history, like John Howard had, of really wanting to affect industrial relations reform. So I think on those two fronts, 
um, I'm sceptical about the scale of the change. And that means that um, the government may not do much at all to address productivity. It may talk the talk rather than walk the walk. But it also means that some of the backlash that's brewing about you know, fears of, of an extreme agenda prove to be unfounded because the government will simply not take the political risk of going too far. But I think the big question is whether it actually looks at other areas to, um, to affect a more, a more useful change, education. Um, I think that there's a big issue with um, the younger generation who are going to suffer the worst consequences of this COVID crisis, whether there's a kind of a new deal that can be arranged with, um, with younger people um, on tax, on education and more. There are a lot of big issues around what the reform agenda should be, but I think the government's only scratching the surface at the moment and it seems to want answers to be put to it rather than going to the people and saying, this is our solution. We have seen some, uh, nonetheless, we have seen some uh, interesting rhetoric coming from the government. It's been widely commented, uh, perhaps earlier on in this crisis than than more recently, but widely commented on the, the level of cooperation between the ACTU and the government and employers in, in finding ways to get through this crisis. And more recently, there's been a little bit of talk, not very specific again, but a little bit of talk about a sort of a coalition version of the accord or some sort of compact between uh, government employers and unions about uh, economic reform uh, and in presumably industrial relations reform is is very much part of that so rhetorically it seems like uh, there's there's a bit of positioning going on that many people might see as positive but is that all it is just a rhetorical stage we're going through and we're just going to revert? Well, I think one of the challenges is because the government has been actually pretty tight-lipped about the fact that of what the nature of this so-called change or so-called reform agenda is going to be like, it's actually very hard to to predict what they are going to do. And further to that, I would sort of say that, you know, this government, and I mean all three of them, the Abbott, Turnbull, to perhaps the least degree, and the Morrison government have always struggled to articulate what Australia is supposed to look like in their model or their view in the 21st century. I I think they have not really been able to articulate a clear vision of that. And someone like Scott Morrison, who um, is not a policy person, has never claimed to be a policy person, who says he is a problem solver and who is a pragmatic very um, optimistic politician who likes to resolve discrete policy problems um, makes him extremely difficult to predict about what he is going to do, which is essentially why this conversation kind of goes around in circles about what his reform agenda is going to be. Um, And so it could be the case that, you know, he actually can act in a way that will surprise us all and strike a new accord with the union movement in a move uh, unanticipated by anyone uh, that would actually land. Or he may simply listen to those closest to him and we can look at his COVID-19 commission for the types of people that he seems to listen to most um, and perhaps that's where we'll see sort of see what this government intends to do which is to invest in gas and perhaps one or two other areas but actually just focus on stabilising things, trying to get enough economic activity and win the next election. Peter, on industrial relations, it's been the third rail of Australian politics, really, certainly for the coalition side since uh, since the the work choices term two thousand four to two thousand and seven, when uh, it was seen as a key reason among a, a few uh, for the demise of the Howard government, and 
We, of course, know that Tony Abbott declared work choices dead, buried and cremated at one stage. Uh, so this, the coalition's been very reluctant to do anything very significant. Can you give us a sense of what employers want out of the industrial relations system that they don't get in broad terms? And is there is there a fear that despite these rhetorical flourishes we've heard that the government doesn't really have the stomach to do anything that might involve a fight? So what employers would like would be um, easier industrial relations to to manage. So um, that can mean um, um, more readily changing uh, workplace agreements, um, making it less bureaucratic and cumbersome to um, make employees redundant when they're not um, contributing or able to contribute or positions don't exist anymore. Um, I think that the enterprise bargaining side of things has got a lot of scope for potential and this might be where some sort of pact with employee representatives, so unions and others, um, could be very useful. Uh, We really need a change in approach in our enterprise bargainings and to reposition it so that we're getting productivity improvements when people sit down to bargain rather than just rolling over the pre-existing enterprise bargain. The attempts to introduce changes through enterprise bargainings have hit a bureaucratic wall with um, an attitude of the Fair Work Commission um, to look at everything in a very, very narrow, microscopic way to, in, to uh, uh, very, very cautious about any disadvantage that might come about if a workplace agreement is uh, uh, changed. And that has just held up um, a whole lot of bargaining agreements where there is an agreement um, and the, the commission is holding up um, while it goes through its microscopic examination. And it also has given rise to or is associated with a very conservative interpretation of what is interestingly phrased as the better off overall test, boot, better off overall, which has been interpreted as at no point can anyone go backwards or can any element of a condition go backwards, which is very different to what better off overall might mean um, in any normal interpretation. So there is a a blockage in the system that really needs to be um, addressed. And Really, the win out of it is um, is productivity, which just can simply mean getting more out of the same hours or it can mean changing work practices so that uh, and free up scope for wage increases. There's a lot that comes out of it. If, if, I mean, historic, if we look back, you know, 10 years or so and we look at the, the low wage outcomes that have been much talked about over the last decade, say since the GFC, say, there's two factors that explain something like 95% of it. One is low inflation, we all know that, and the other is low productivity. And real wage growth, so taking inflation out of the 
equation, the reason for real low, real low wage growth or low real wage growth is low productivity. And if we can get the enterprise bargaining system and workplace relations more generally working in a way that's conducive to that, we, we solve the low wage growth problem as well. Now, that's not a trickle-down economics thing. That's just a direct outcome of the bargains between employers and employees and making those arrangements work better that's a very direct way that, that productivity can be lifted. And I think that's really where employers would like to see industrial relations go. David, I've been reading a bit recently of the, th- of the thoughts of UCL Professor Mariana Matsukatu, and um, she's the author of The Value of Everything. And she's a really imaginative economist who argues for purposefulness and intentionality in government assistance. So what she's saying is that in moments like this, with this crisis where money is pumped into the economy, where assistance is given to sectors, that we ought to be demanding conditions out of it. And she cites Germany's support for its ailing steel sector and requirements that were written into the assistance that was given for technological upgrades uh, for you know lower emissions and greater innovation. And she says this has led to the German steel sector being one of the most innovative and cleanest in the world. Uh, do you think there's... Um, uh, you know, scope for Australia to actually start doing that with some of this assistance that we ought to be putting stronger requirements on. I think, for example, everyone criticised the long-term assistance for the Australian automotive industry, uh, which really didn't have – it had some strings attached to it, but it really didn't drive the kind of transformation that would have eventually made that sector highly competitive and thus it might still be here were that the case. Would you like to see – those sorts of strings applied to government assistance? I think um, the idea of being more demanding or setting higher expectations for the nation with the, um, the disbursement of government money, it's a, that, that's fascinating and I think um, worth pursuing. But it's interesting when you look at so many government programs, when we, as I've written about them and you have written about them over time, you see that um, the promises made aren't delivered. I mean, there was a big, big ambition with the uh, funding of um, car manufacturing to shift to hybrid vehicles. And that was done for a short time, but it still wasn't enough to save that manufacturing sector. Uh, and we see it with so many government grants where there are conditions set, but they aren't really met. And then the audit comes in and it's, um, it's a fairly critical audit of the program. I think... Um, it's very hard for the government to do that because they haven't been able to do it consistently for, for some time. Governments of both persuasions. Um, but also, I don't actually get any language about that from incumbent, um, incumbent ministers. Um, they have a lot of praise for manufacturers who've been able to adjust quickly to the crisis and shift from manufacturing one thing to another that's actually needed in hospitals, for instance, right now, whether that's gowns or masks or ventilators. And so I think um, that's been a real success story for the government and for industry, but that's a pretty small scale, um, that's, that's a small part of, of a much bigger sector. And I don't think it's translated to a, a wider government ambition to 
to reshape Australian industry or manufacturing. I think they like to make the point about how this crisis could prompt us to reconsider our dependence on overseas manufacturing for some of our for some of our goods. Um, but I don't know how that's going to be translated into policy action just yet because I I don't see a concrete um, a concrete agenda on that front. I might just end then, uh, given that we're getting uh, quite close to time, uh, by asking all three of you for your guess, I suppose it must be at this stage, of whether we will have wasted this crisis once it's all over or whether we will have used it to drive some significant change. I mean, it's obviously going to be disappointing. You're not going to achieve everything you want, but what are your impressions? Uh, David, you first. Well, I believe that Australia is an incredibly uh, resilient and successful country, and so I think the crisis will change Australia and Australia will emerge strongly from the crisis over time. I have that confidence in the country. I don't believe that that will be the result of a government edict or a government policy that will affect that change. I'm sceptical about the ability of um, the current government or maybe any government to come up with a reform blueprint that's going to change everything. But I think Australians, uh, the country and the industry, uh, will will do that over time. Maria? So I guess if you can sort of think about it like this, the the menu of options available to the government has expanded dramatically. Um, but perhaps given what we've sort of seen so far, I'm a bit pessimistic and think we'll probably end up with butter chicken again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. And what about you, Peter? Well, I, I'm, I'm um, optimistic that um, as a country we can – we can take advantage of the crisis and become a better place. And, uh, but I think that, I think that we put a lot of, we sit around waiting for governments to do things a hell of a lot. And I think that um, as, as is happening across the country in relation to climate, there's a whole lot of people talking about the actions that um, ought to be happening and that they can do, and they're talking about that and they're making progress in those talks. And there's wide-ranging groups, including businesses, unions, social welfare people, Greens, a whole cross-section of people agreeing about directions that should happen. And I think that can happen, and, and indeed there are conversations across a range of policy areas that uh, where that is happening, and I think that the risk um, of a dull, um, directionless talk tomorrow is that simply that the government is less a part of those conversations, and will find that really the society is moving and leaving them behind. So I think that you know that we we don't know what will happen tomorrow. Maybe it'll be inspirational, but um, in any case, there's a great. There's a great momentum and a great deal of talking and thinking going on outside of government, and I think that's very healthy. I think what's kind of important to distinguish, though, there, sorry to do this, but is like there are things like you say, Peter, where people in private industry can take the lead and government can ultimately follow and set up a regulatory environment that sort of corrects for what is already happening. But there are significant areas of the economy which are government-led around, you know, care provision, education, um, uh, childcare, which 
actually it is dependent on government to create an incentive structure. Housing is another um, in effect um, where they're the ones setting the incentive structure. It doesn't really matter what individuals want if that incentive structure isn't there to enable them to actually achieve what they want. Oh, I agree that the governments hold a lot of the levers, but um, the issue isn't really um, – the issue essentially is what's going to get them to drive the, use those levers and whether we're waiting yeah. around for governments to generate the ideas themselves or whether we just um, drag them kicking and screaming is, um, is the question here. And, and um, you know, even with the – even with the Howard government, I think they were dragged kicking and screaming to some of their reform agendas, particularly on tax. Um, and waiting around for them isn't really, uh, you know, a great strategy, I, I think. And and even trying to lobby directly, they're subject to all these other pressures and, uh, you know, um, very hard to get them moving. I think that we, we can best better invest in time in, in working out solutions and Politics is ultimately contestable and putting those solutions forward in a forceful and convincing way is uh, often a better strategy than, um, than uh, waiting around for politicians to, to um, use their imagination. Yes, I think you may well be right there. Look, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there. My observation, just for what it's worth, is that um, I'm probably closer to David Crowe here. I think there'll be a lot of talk and in the end perhaps not so much will change. I would like to see something achievable done, something achievable aimed at. And one of the things we've talked about it before on this podcast, but, uh, you know, we had 105,000 people or thereabouts uh, homeless in this country at any one time. A number of those people have been put in emergency accommodation through the lockdown. Uh, surely a country of our wealth and wit has uh, some policy answers to deal with this very real human situation and to fix it. There are some things that are far too big to fix, but this is not too big to fix. This is just out of sight, out of mind. And I would hope that at least we can start to make some inroads, some significant inroads and in those kinds of areas where things can be done. There have been a couple of references through the pod uh, today uh, about a speech tomorrow and when you're listening to this you'll probably already be aware of what was in that speech and that is uh, that the Prime Minister um, is addressing the National Press Club and uh, we're expecting quite a lot of information about the state of the economy and uh, and the government's plans. Of course, uh, that can often be disappointing as well. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see on that. But I just wanted to uh, clarify what uh, what that speech was that's been referred to a few times. Can I thank uh, very much David Crow, Peter Byrne and Maria Taflaga for your really interesting comments today. It's been a um, wide-ranging discussion and uh, the truth is, as is so often the case, we could have talked for longest, particularly on some of these policy areas. So thanks, David. Thanks, Peter. And thanks, Maria. And thank you to you for being with us on Democracy Sausage. Uh, stay around um, uh, toward the end of the weekend you'll uh, have a democracy sausage extra uh, where we're going to be talking about what the situation's been like in the US and particularly in New York so uh, we'll get an on the ground uh, account from one of Australia's leading intellectuals bye for now thank you all bye thank you thanks a lot 